The issue of the RMB uh, is one that is an irritant not just to the United States, but is an irritant uh, to a lot of China's trading partners and those who are competing with China to sell goods around the world. Uh, it is undervalued. I hear the bells down in the canyons. It's snow in New York. Some blue December, I'm gone to the moon. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Wald. Today is Tuesday, December 7th, and that was President Obama, you heard at the top of the podcast, talking after the G20 meeting last month. On the show today, the world's biggest economies spend one summer plotting in secret together over French wine how to make the dollar worth much, much less. First, our Planet Money indicator. Uh, today's Planet Money indicator is $700 billion. Uh, that is about how much that big tax deal announced today uh, will cost over the next couple of years. So that is $700 billion that will be added to the deficit, despite the fact that everyone in Washington keeps talking lately about cutting the deficit. And just for the sake of comparison, the deficit this year was about $1.3 trillion. So $700 billion is not nothing. It's not nothing. And in fact, we can in a way think of this as another big stimulus plan. Of course, nobody in Washington wants to say stimulus right now. But there's clearly an idea here that this plan will give a sort of short-term boost to the economy. Uh, it comes mainly in the form of tax cuts. It includes those cuts for high earners that Republicans really wanted. But there are also lots more tax cuts that both Democrats and Republicans seem pretty happy about. And then on top of that, there's some extra spending that's in the form of extending unemployment benefits for another year or so. The CBO has weighed in on much of what's in this plan. And if you think about it as a stimulus, it's sort of a mixed bag, like extending unemployment benefits. That works very well as a stimulus, according to the CBO. Cutting income taxes, though, not so much. Okay, Hannah. Let's get on to the show. Yes, let's. Okay, so Jacob, you've been coming on with lots of indicators lately talking about the global currency war and how basically everyone in the world wants their currency to be weaker right now. And that's always a little confusing because a weaker currency sounds like a bad thing. But a weak currency means that your country's exports are cheaper in other countries. So the weaker the dollar is, say, relative to the Chinese yuan, the cheaper GM cars are going to be to sell in China. But, of course, the dollar is not getting weaker relative to the Chinese yuan, uh, which is partly because China is keeping that currency artificially weak relative to the dollar, which, of course, is good for China's exports. Now, the U.S. and lots of other countries in the world want that to change. But so far, nobody's figured out how to make that happen, which is not particularly surprising. I mean, the world is a competitive place, and we shouldn't expect the leaders of the planet's biggest economies to get together and drink wine and smoke cigars and all agree to Fix the problem. But, Jacob, 25 years ago, that is exactly what happened. And the story of how it happened, how all the strongest economies in the world got together to drink wine and smoke cigars and hold hands, that is the subject of today's show. And this was a secret mission in 1985 we're going to be telling you about. It was called the Plaza Accord. Okay, let's set the stage here. It's the mid-80s, and the dollar, it's just getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, which is hurting U.S. exports. The American auto industry is really struggling. Farmers are struggling. This whole idea of the rust belt is sort of emerging, and Americans are losing jobs. And all the while, the dollar keeps getting stronger. And one man who is watching it happen is Ted Truman. So Ted Truman worked in the 1980s as an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank. 
And his job, among other things, was to monitor the dollar. So all through the early to mid-80s, Truman's job was pretty repetitive. Every single week, he'd present the latest economic data to his bosses, and every week it was the same. He'd stand before this board in front of spreadsheets and graphs and say, The dollar, on average, has gone up again, and it doesn't look like it's sustainable. Did you get sort of bored of saying, giving the same report every week? No, uh, we uh, we uh, we try to make it interesting. <laughs> if you, want to <laughs> you do a little way. dance, uh, a little dance, right? And uh, have a little joke and say we can't explain it. And uh, and there's not one other currency in the world, right? So you had other currencies. So you could uh, mix it up with a little bit of yen, a little bit of a little bit of yen, a <laughs> little bit of Swiss franc. So you so you got to say other things about other currencies, but essentially about the dollar, you were always saying the same thing: the dollar's going up. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it was a it was a um, unpleasant period. It was a long slog. So this is a problem that Truman, and for that matter, a problem that the United States had never really faced before. You know, today we just take it for granted that the value of currencies change all the time. They move up and down like stocks. But up until the early 70s, it didn't work that way. Uh, The U.S. was still on a form of the gold standard. And the world's biggest economies, they all basically had gotten together and agreed that they'd keep the value of their currencies more or less stable. They, They didn't change much. So for Truman, when this was happening, it was sort of a curiosity. It was like a curiosity to be monitored. But he didn't think it would persist. He thought the dollar would eventually lose some value. And when he thought about it, he didn't think there was anything he or the government could or should do about it. Uh, But there was another guy in government. And for him, the topic of Truman's weekly meetings, the rising dollar, this was nothing less than an existential threat to the U.S. economy. And this guy had a secret plan to make it stop. And I went around Europe for roughly three months, meeting my counterparts, the G7 deputies. It was an exciting period of time. The 80s were very exciting. This is David Mulford. He was undersecretary for international affairs in the U.S. Treasury, and this was his big plan. He was going to convince the leaders of the world's biggest economies, Germany, France, the U.K., and Japan, to get together and secretly totally out of the blue, start selling U.S. dollars. The idea was that the increased supply would drive down the price of the dollar, make it weaker relative to other currencies. There was a problem, though. The world leaders, they were not so keen on the U.S. telling them what to do. So David Mulford tried the sensitive approach. He went in, met with people, he listened, tried to be a different American than they were used to working with. And little by little, as Mulford's summer in Europe went on, he thought, It was working. And then something happened where he knew, he knew he was making headway. A couple of them took me to their homes for a dinner and a glass of wine and a cigar or something and talk into the late evening. So obviously there was a change in in mode, which um, is the beginning of how you create a sense of trust with people. A sense of trust is is nice and all, but if you think about it, this idea that Mulford is trying to sell over wine and cigars is something that, at least in some ways, is not going to be helpful for these other countries' economies. I mean, it would mean that their exports would be more expensive in the U.S., so Americans would buy less stuff made in Japan, less stuff made in Germany. Which, when you think about it, makes it even more surprising that the plan actually worked. Uh, Right. And really, it wasn't just the wine and cigars. I mean, they got Mulford in the door, but on their own, they probably wouldn't have been enough. In in the end, Mulford used a more classic diplomatic technique, fear. First of all, we were a very big economy, and they were very fearful that we would 
impose protectionist measures that would diminish their access to our market. So that that was a major threat to them. The Japanese and the Europeans were afraid that the U.S. would raise taxes on Japanese and other goods coming into the U.S. And in fact, Congress already had several bills in the works to do just that. And this is the part of the story that always really reminds me of today. You know, you can just basically replace fears about Japan with fears about China today. You know, you hear the same exact rumblings in Congress that Chinese stuff is too cheap and we can't compete. We have to protect ourselves. And their currency just needs to increase in value relative to ours. But back in 1985, David Mulford managed to do something that we still haven't been able to do today. He managed to get the world's other big economies to do what America wanted. Little by little, he got each of them to commit. We got this stuff down on paper over a period of months. And when we got it down, then the Plaza Accord became a possible reality. So it's the end of the summer of 85. Mulford has the five leading capitalist economies of the world on board for his plan. They're going to get together and sell a lot of U.S. dollars into the marketplace all at the same time, all of a sudden, and they think it'll work on one condition. Provided it is kept absolutely secret until the moment that we do it. Because it is only with the element of surprise as well as the size of the operation, that we would shock the markets when we acted. On September 22, 1985, finance ministers from the five countries gathered in New York City at the Plaza Hotel, and the leaders sat around this big wooden table, and their aides kind of sat along the walls. They agreed to a plan, and later the countries went into the currency markets and sold a bunch of dollars. Now, the amount of dollars, they sold $500 million, which doesn't sound like a lot today, and it wasn't even a lot back then. But because it was coordinated and unprecedented, it had this immediate effect. I talked to this guy, Gary Dorsch, who was working as a trader for a firm on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange when this happened. And he, like traders all over the world, remembers that night well. The night of uh, this agreement uh the uh, release of the communique, I believe, was on a Sunday night when the futures markets were still closed in Chicago. And I went downtown with a colleague of mine. We saw these uh, movements in the um, off the uh, television screen. Now, in those days, uh, you would see the dollar generally uh, trade two or three yen a day. But on this particular day, uh, the dollar had dropped by about 13 yen which was uh, probably the largest daily move in history uh, ever ever seen um, for the dollar-yen. It was you know, pretty eye-popping. We had never really imagined uh, that it would be uh, so successful, I guess, or so violent uh, a move. We were in a state of shock. And when the market opened up, um, you know, there was plenty of pandemonium in the two years after they put the plan into effect, the dollar plummeted. It fell by around 40%, which was way more than even David Mulford, the guy who went around Europe selling the plan, ever expected. I think uh, that became apparent over time because the, the, the depreciation of the dollar, in a way, far exceeded expectations at the time of the plaza and took place super quick. The movement of the dollar down quite steadily and quite relentlessly after a while, began to alarm some of the players. 
One of the players who was alarmed was Ted Truman back at the Federal Reserve. He had spent so many years going to those meetings and saying the dollar's rising, the dollar's rising again. After the Plaza Accord, it was exactly the opposite. Well, we would say, well, the dollar's gone down again. Week after week after week, the same report. I was nervous uh, in the sense that uh, it was it's unusual for a country uh, to deliberately try to weaken its currency this way. It was largely unprecedented. Uh, it was uh, dangerous because uh, you could have a run on the dollar. A run on the dollar meaning people everywhere were going to sell their dollars. Yeah. It would be a show of, uh, you know, if the United States doesn't care about its currency... Why should we? Chairman Volcker made the following statement, which I'm going to read to you, if that's all right with you. Love it. The success of countries in the past of pushing their own currencies down without creating problems is extremely limited. In fact, I do not know of any case where any country has done this and been happy with the about the end result. And in some sense, in the end, Volcker was right. Uh, it was not a happy ending. Truman explained to us that there are actually a few different reasons you don't want the dollar to just keep getting weaker and weaker and weaker indefinitely. For one thing, a falling dollar means that everything Americans import from abroad gets more expensive. Uh, those higher prices can lead to inflation. So that's one fear. Another fear is is sort of the fear of what's happening in Europe right now, which is that people panic about the currency. People would panic about the dollar if the dollar kept going down and down and lose confidence. And, and they wouldn't just lose confidence in dollar bills, but investors would start worrying about everything that is denominated in dollars, all the stocks on the New York Stock Exchange, American company bonds, and that they would just start selling. And problem number three is really more a global issue. It's that all these other countries started to say, you know, the dollar is going down and down and down. This is more than we bargained for. You know, Japan is saying now our exports are super expensive in America. We're getting killed here. And so on February 22nd, 1987, less than two years after the Plaza Accord, the same countries all got together again. This time they got together in France and they signed the Louvre Accord. And essentially, the Louvre Accord undid everything they had done in Plaza. Instead of selling dollars this time, they were buying dollars. They were trying to put a floor on how much the dollar could fall. Here's Ted Truman again. One of the problems with using a tool is if it doesn't work, you look foolish. And then uh, if you have it do a job that it's not really capable of doing. Did the U.S. look foolish? I think so. Now, Ted Truman calls it foolish. David Mulford, who was at the U.S. Treasury, he chooses to remember it differently. One story is that um, my mother one day was flying from Tucson, Arizona to Chicago. She sat next to a fellow, and um, he turned out to be from a big American company in Chicago. And when she said, I have a son who's at the Treasury, and she mentioned my name, he jumped up and said, this is the guy who saved the America by depreciating the dollar and keeping us competitive and keeping jobs and so on. So there was a lot of um, emotion involved in these issues in those days, and there is today. Also today, there's still this huge debate about whether the Plaza Accord and the Louvre Accord were successful. I mean, on the one hand, people say, well, 
you know, maybe maybe the Plaza Accord didn't even do much to the dollar. It had shown signs of falling anyway. And then on the other hand, suppose it did have an effect on the dollar. You get into this much bigger issue, which is clearly the tools that governments have to intervene in global markets are very crude and not very precise, and they end up working in ways that no one can predict. Even though we talk about these tools today, government intervention today, as if we know exactly what they're going to do. Or at least the the people intervening talk about them as if they know exactly what they're going to do, and they and they have this great certainty uh, and and this sense of precision. Oh, we can we can juice the economy a little bit, but get out just in time. And I, I mean, there is reason to be skeptical of that. And what we never really know is what is going to happen down the road. So with the Plaza Accord, when the Plaza Accord happened, the dollar got weaker, but the Japanese yen got stronger, and it got stronger and stronger. And people argue today that this is one of the things that set the stage for a bubble in Japan, which led to Japan's lost decade. This is a huge argument with people arguing very strongly on both sides. But it is an argument that China uses a lot when the U.S. puts pressure on China to let its currency rise. I mean, China basically says, you guys made Japan do that. And look how it turned out for them. As always, we want to hear from you. Please visit our blog at npr.org slash money, where you can participate in our first ever Planet Money economics experiment. I don't want to tell you too much here, but I will say this. It involves a kitten, a slow loris, and a baby polar bear. And it's fun. It's at our blog, npr.org slash money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Thanks for listening. Joyful and triumphant and I can't